So we're looking at Mark 14, 32 to 42. And Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're being taught quite crucial things by Jesus in this passage. And we are being taught some things that I know I, I struggle with a lot. Particularly handling being let down. I know I've got a thing. I, I find it hard when people just, you know, I've got to watch myself a bit. Because uh, when people let me down, they might get a strong reaction. I find it really hard being let down. It bugs me. I can't deal with it. Um, handling, dealing with being uncomfortable with what God's will clearly is. Uh, that's another difficult one, isn't it? Handling life in a world that we are too weak for. To rise to the challenges of. Jesus says, watch and pray. But none of them is able to do it. And their spirit's willing, it's just their flesh is too weak for the job. And that's, that's our experience if we're Christian people of our life with God. The spirit is very, very willing, but the flesh is rubbish <laughs> and it doesn't keep up. So here's Jesus then, as he faces down death, and the sort of death that he particularly must die, not simply despised and rejected by mankind, but forsaken by God and rejected as he bears in his own body the holy wrath of God for the sin of humanity. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus says, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said. That loving relationship. Everything is possible for you. You are the almighty God. Take this cup from me but not what I will, what you will. Jesus at his most vulnerable and, you know, inverted commas, human, right? But there's an awful lot more going on here than that. Well, the location, we know he's in Gethsemane, right? The location is no longer Bethany. He's been in Bethany the night before having the Passover. They were having the Passover a, a night earlier, 24 hours earlier than everybody else. Obviously, because Jesus was going to be the Passover lamb in reality. And so they had their sort of celebration of it to evoke it and, you know, get it going through their minds as to what was happening with Jesus, get it going more clearly. And it was required by the religious rules that you had to be within Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, Bethany was outside. There, there just wasn't space for all the people who, who, who came, so they were staying outside. Uh, but because there was just not room for people to be the Passover night before, they, they sort of fiddled about with it. And Greater Jerusalem you could be in, and it sort of ran halfway up the Mount of Olives, not as far as Bethany. Uh, so Jesus hasn't gone as far as there. He's just gone across the other side, and there's a big flat open space that nobody's using because they're all away having the Passover. And it's quiet because everybody else is doing stuff somewhere else. It's like being Christmas when you're not having Christmas yourself. And Jesus finds himself with his disciples, probably pre-arranged place, in a place called Gethsemane, towards the foot of the Mount of Olives. It means oil press, Gethsemane. 
So he's on the flat open place where they brought the olives down to and processed them, squeezed the oil out of them to take it away. Deserted, quiet, everyone else celebrating the festival. Jesus seeking peace and quiet to pray to God for a way out if possible. But if it's not possible, then what he seeks is the complete submission of his own will to the will of the Father. And that seeking the alignment of his own will with the will of the Father is, is, is what's happening when this incident goes on. We've seen Jesus struggling with temptation 40 days in the desert, being tempted by the devil at the beginning of his ministry. Here he is, Jesus, struggling with the temptation of his own flesh at the opposite end of his life as he wrestles to submit to the unwelcome will of God, as his, as his flesh cries out for some other outcome. That's the big thing going on. We can't forget that, can't put that to one side. He's going through that agony of soul because he loves you and because he loves me and because he knows what he's got to do for us. But we're shown that struggle to align his will with the will of God alongside the Spirit's willingness in his disciples but their flesh is utter weakness to follow through. And that is the big battle for all the saved sinners that Jesus has left behind on earth. When he's trying to tell them to watch and pray, and then they're going to fail him, they're going to learn a lesson that that's what you've got to do, because your spirit is willing and your flesh is weak. That's the score. Your spirit's willing, your flesh is weak, so you've got to watch and pray, or you fall into temptation and you let Jesus down badly. So here's a solution we spend our lives working on. Watch, so we're alert to what's happening. Pray about it, because we're too weak to deal with it ourselves. So that you do not enter into the open door that exists on the house of temptation. And here's that, that powerfully strong onion gets unpeeled to us in a, in a powerfully unforgettable way, okay? It says to his disciples, verse 32, sit and pray now you, you just read that and you go past it and you think, mm, yeah um what's happening it is all hotting up they don't want to sit and pray they want to sharpen spears and swords and of course they do that's our response isn't it the city's fermenting the end is upon them the, the time with jesus is coming to its fulfillment and jesus says sit here they don't want to sit there I'm going over there to pray. I'm going to do something that's actually going to work. You sit there and pray. Our circumstances are nothing like as intense, but how do you relate to this prospect that Jesus is going to say to you, things are getting crucial, they're about to go kinetic, sit there. Not even you sit here and you pray, you just sit there. I'm going over there to pray. And then he takes his inner core team on a bit further forwards in verses 33 to 34. He took Peter, James, John along with him and he, he took them forwards a bit from the others and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed, he says, with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch. Now, who's he got with him? Who's he taking a bit further? These guys are the two known previously as, you know, Boanerges, the Sons of Thunder. Uh, and you know, shy retiring Peter, not. 
So he's taking the hotheads. You better come a bit closer to me because I'm not leaving you here. I want to keep a closer eye on you. Don't you go doing anything daft. You come on with me a bit. He takes his inner core. There's going to be some action. These guys are the most likely to cause that action. And what he's going to do with them is he's going to open a small crack of the window to be able to see something of the Saviour's own struggle to accept and embrace the unwelcome will of his Father. Because that's going to stand him in good stead for their discipleship and the things they're going to have to do. He tells them where he is, where he actually is at that moment in his soul. Now let's be clear about this. If you're going to be an effective disciple maker, and that's what it's after all all about, that's what we're for then you will not be creating great PR for yourself. That's not what you'll be about. You'll not be out there showing people you're the godliest, most spiritual person they know. That's not how you make disciples. You're going to be showing them what it's about, what it's like. So much of following Christ on earth consists in praying ourselves to the point where we can embrace the unwelcome will of the Father. Because we don't want what is right. We don't want what is good. We don't want that course of action. And if we're not teaching by example the way through the struggle with our own sinful flesh, you simply aren't following the Master, and, you, and, and you're not going to be teaching other people to be disciples of his that way either. So Jesus opens to, up to his disciples the struggle he's having at the height of his ministry on earth, at the critical point. Now you don't need the full grammatical detail to grasp this. Uh, Jesus takes Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed. That's a very powerful expression in the original. And, and troubled. And he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. And all those words are very, very, very strong words. He is deeply distressed. He's awfully troubled. He's completely wrecked with the sorrow to the point of death. This is killing me, we might say. And one thing he asks of his closest friends and supporters in the deep anguish of his own soul is to stay here and keep watch. Now, what do they want to watch for? We know what's coming. They know what's coming. Why do they want to watch for? We know Jesus isn't going to try to run or resist. Why on earth should his followers keep watch? What are they keeping watch over? They'll need to keep watch on themselves that they do not seek to prevent any of the unfolding will of God. We, we know that because there was that incident that's going to happen with a sword and a high priest's servant's ear. That's where it breaks down. Watch yourself. I can't see much else that Jesus would be wanting them to watch for. But I could be wrong. So he takes his disciples and he says, sit there and pray, verse 32. And then he takes Peter, James and John on with him and he shows them a bit of the inner turmoil so they understand about the, the challenges of aligning your own desires with the will of God. He takes them on and he says, stay here and keep watch. And then himself, verses 35 and 6, he goes on a little bit further. And he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, but not what I want, what you want. There's the crux of the struggle for Jesus. He's come in the first place to call mankind to repentance and faith, following him in fishing men out of the way of God's wrath for the incoming kingdom of God. 
And now his own flesh needs to submit to that same sovereignty of God as he prepares to pay the price of the souls that he's going to ransom. And he balks at it. He balks at it perhaps because he's thinking not suicidal but sacrificial. He's not killing himself in that sort of way. But he counts the cost and he's up for the sacrifice. Abba is that intimate Aramaic word used here quite radically by a Jew for his God, but Jesus is bringing about that new relationship, that new covenant, where we relate to God like that as our loving, kind Father. Here he is appealing to the Almighty, and Jesus is asking for this one thing, that the cup of the wrath of God should be taken from him. It's a poetic description we know from the pages of Isaiah, the prophet. We see it later on in the pages of Revelation. Drinking to the dregs the cup of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You know? But not what I will, he says, what you will. And his flesh struggles with the consequences. But the submission of his soul to his Father in heaven, submitting in his heart, is so clearly complete. He's struggled with it. But he's persevered. And he's persevered because he loves me. And he's got there. And he's going to do that thing. He's going to walk that road. He's going to drink that cup down for people who fail him. He's teaching them that they're going to fail him and what they need to do about that. Now, I've got to admit, this next bit for me is most challenging. You, you learn lessons over time and all that, but I still find being let down amongst the most challenging things in the spiritual life but it is deadly to let it make you bitter. It's deadly to you to make, let it make you feel bitter because we are in the same boat and we let people down, we let Jesus down all the time. If you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. So there's Jesus wrestling with all of this, wrestling with God at the moment of greatest need. And there is best men soundly asleep. <laughs> the church is brilliant at sleeping at the point of a great crisis, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's we're great. The point is soundly asleep. Uh, the church is soundly asleep. And, and there's the first big major lesson in this section. The best of the men. Peter, James, John, headline in the act. Peter, let down. Here's Jesus in the deep agony of spirit at the very brink of insider betrayal and then horrifying death. And here are his best men, his closest confidants. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? And here's the crucial bit. First fundamental reality. Your spirit is willing, but the flesh you've got is weak. That's the fundamental analysis of a Christian's life, a Christian's life. We you love the Lord, we have to reckon on that being our experience, and, and once we've reckoned with it, we need to deal with it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray, here's the solution, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Problem, solution. How will you handle the weakness of your human flesh in tension with your willing spirit? On your own, you can't. On your own, you're not at all equipped to deal with it. And that is the reason you'll find you can only ever cope with this when you watch and pray about it. Watch for it. Pray about it when you see it. 
that's crucial to the spiritual life. I, I don't know, I've never heard a sermon on watching. But <laughs> it's first base. Have you have your head switched on? Have your eyes be, be alert to what's happening around you? It's a spiritual life, it's a spiritual battle. And pray about the things that would draw you away from embracing the unwelcome will of God. Watch, pray, takes both. And given the God-given aspirations of a Christian's heart, and, and given the, the weakness of a Christian's human flesh at the moment, you can't sort this one out for yourself, so you must watch out for what's happening and pray on through to the confounding of temptation. And, and, and here they are, and here we are, falling asleep. <laughs> and so we will, in our weakness, if we don't watch and pray intelligently, that we don't fall into temptation because it's there snapping and the door swings open and welcomingly wide and Jesus the second time this happened the second the first letdown was verses 37 to 38 the second letdown verses 39 to 40 he still keeps coming to them he goes off into the darkness and wrestles with this issue that he's facing pleading with his father to find another way that God would let the cup of wrath pass from him with the proviso of his own submission to his father's decision and coming back he finds again the people he most needs to support him and and they're falling asleep once again on his last night with them and and they need to learn to watch and to pray if if they're going to stay clear of temptation for the second time they flunk the, flunk the crucial lesson Christ knows the spirit is willing but the flesh they've got is weak so we need to watch and to inform and to drive our prayers and pray to mend our weakness with the presence of his strength so that we do not fall into temptation they got caught napping again and the effect of it they were speechless they did not know what to say to him at the end of verse 40 didn't know what to say to him there's no excuse we can offer in the presence of Jesus when we've napped rather than carefully watched and prayed. There's, no, there's nothing we can say. And they, they've got nothing to say. Peter has got nothing to say. Some suggest there's a note of sarcasm or, or irony in, in what Jesus says um, as he comes back to them uh, the next time. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Arise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Oh, go on, sleep then. Uh, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's quite what he's saying. But the expression's a bit obscure, so it's hard to say. What we know is that for a very long time, these disciples are going to remember and regret the disjunction between the willingness of their spirit and the weakness of their flesh. And they've, they've had that lesson really given them. And that awareness should equip us all to be better able to deal with it. Because that is what underlies the deepest struggles in this life of a saved sinner for whom Christ is about to die. Willingness of spirit, weakness of flesh. Remedy, watch and we fall asleep. Pray, we're doing something else. Or you will fall into temptation. Now, conclusion. The lessons of this passage are quite crucial. Right? The good, perfect, excellent will of God for his people is sometimes the complete opposite of what our flesh cries out for. That's the way it is, because our flesh is not on God's side. Our sinful human flesh, our human nature, 
natural is not always on God's side, putting it mildly. So the good, perfect, excellent will of God for us is something that our flesh will often cry out about. We are sinners still by nature, and the kingdom of God is still being formed in our affections. It's not there yet in what we want. We're growing. And if the Lord, you know, in his preparation for Calvary, shows us that there were times when he would have wished it could be otherwise, but hang on, I am completely submitted to the will of God. Then it's going to be an issue for us too. And the matter is resolved not by any quick fix, nor by any superficial means, but by watching over our souls and our affections and what's happening, and sitting, praying for conformity with the will of God, for the will of our God to be echoed in the depths of our hearts. So we go out to do and to embrace His will, will, and fully, because the more fully we can, the better it's going to be. And it hurts. That hurts. Doesn't hurt because it's wrong, but because we are, when we slide into thinking that the will of God for us is going to be bad. And Jesus persevered through the letdowns he encountered. There's another lesson to learn. The good, perfect, excellent will of God is something our flesh cries out against. And it hurts. But also that Jesus persevered through the letdowns he encountered, and that's hard. When the people closest round him let him down because of their own weakness, at the point where he needed them most, Jesus still loved them. And Jesus more than accepted them. And Jesus went on continuing in his own anguish of soul to disciple the people who'd let him down most. And that's a choker. What it comes back to is this. For, for every one of us as Christians, this whole thing about our spirit being willing, our fresh flesh being weak, and, and our continuing to be unwatchful and unprayerful and deal with it the way he's given us to do it. It comes back to this. We've got to keep on that game. And we need somehow to live with the fact that Jesus still loves and accepts us when we're asleep on the job and we screw it up. And he's showing that as well. And that's a hard thing to take. I've gone and done and been and said and whatever, and he still loves me to bits. His grace is not just the defibrillator jolt that brings us to life in the first place. It is the mains current that goes on keeping us running. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Not my will, but your will be done. Amen. Amen.